0: All right, welcome in everyone. This is Socialization and COVID-19. Cassandra Williams from Bonding and Behavior LLC is our instructor tonight. Cassandra, thanks so much for coming. We're thrilled to have you. I think you have a presentation that you're going to share. Um, Cassandra's usually, we usually just have it like a like a conversation, guys. So if you have questions, put them in the Q&A, and we'll answer them as we go. Cassandra's presentation is uploaded in the handout tab of the classroom as well. Cassandra, thanks for coming and take it away.
1: Thanks for having me. So like Renee mentioned, I noticed a lot of parents talking about how much they we're just concerned about reintegrating. I know in the state of Colorado, even from county to county and town to town, we're all at such different phases of going back to school in person or getting comfortable with letting our children play again or, you know, just kind of reintegrating to any social setting. So I thought it was a really relevant topic. And especially for a lot of my foster parents, I've been speaking with, it's been really scary. You know, if you got a placement at the height of the pandemic or you really haven't gotten used to your kiddo outside of the pandemic or even, you know, if one of your placements was an infant when all of this started and all of a sudden we're coming towards the end of this pandemic hopefully with vaccines rolling out and you're exiting with a toddler. So I think it's just such a unique time to be a parent, let alone an individual. And then you add fostering and adoption on top of all of this. And oh my goodness, it's just a lot. And so my hope is as we talk today about socialization and the pandemic, how it's impacted our kids and just catching up to whatever our new normal is going to be is that i'm able to offer some reassurance to you all as far as what socialization actually is and what is the developmental impact um like renee mentioned i love to have conversations and i notice it's a much smaller group tonight than what we typically have so i think that's all the more reason for us to be able to engage i just notice usually Other people's questions are the area where we're all all able to really learn the most. Um, And especially just with the unique group that we have of foster parents, you guys have such a unique breadth of knowledge that it always seems to be helpful to hear from each other too. So please do access that chat or the Q&A portion as much as you would like. I'm very open to it. And I'm gonna go ahead and attempt my screen share now. My PowerPoint's not always super conducive to this at first, but we're gonna get there.
0: Sandra it was so interesting to me that you mentioned infants. We had family friends over for the first time this past weekend, and they had a seven week old and they were so interested in watching her because they said, she's never seen other people, which is so crazy to think about, right? You know, you have your family, your friends, everybody comes to meet the new baby, but they really Mm -hmm. haven't, they've really been hunkering down. And they were like, Oh, it's so fun to see her, you know, see a new face and see how she reacts. And we just take that for granted. And it is a difference now that we've been quarantined for
1: so long. It is. And I know infants are just so interesting. And I really feel for any parent that has a newborn during this pandemic, because you see stuff, you know, like family members having to stare at new babies through a glass door on their patio and stuff like that. It's just, it's been really difficult for a lot of us so hopefully yeah. we can find some answers tonight. let me tell
0: you what Rachel just said in the comments my baby's birthday is March 12th he knows most people through FaceTime March 12th of 2020 so that's been a, a year of yeah he thinks people are on screens probably <laughs> sweet guy
1: oh oh guy okay. Wow. Let's head over here. So we're going to start off with kind of defining socialization versus socializing, because this is the first thing that I'm really hearing from my parents that are coming to me about this. I think, guys, I had like six parents in one week talk to me in session about this tremendous fear that their child is not ever going to know how to be socialized. Um, And there is a really important distinction for us here as far as what is the difference between socialization versus socializing? so socializing is actually the response that we have to appropriate socialization and i know that's kind of a mouthful um but socialization comes in many different forms during development socializing we're going to get more and more into it but a lot of the time when we talk about socializing we're thinking about peer interactions and that is largely what COVID has taken from us so we'll just kind of put a bookmark as far as peer interactions and socialization and socializing and we'll get there throughout our time together um but socialization is how we develop appropriately and understand societal expectations then when we come over here to socialization and developmental trauma, and this is why I really wanted to come to Renee right away when I saw a theme, because not only was it primarily my foster parents that were concerned. It's also because socialization is already such a big part of what you guys are dealing with. And I think without even recognizing it or necessarily having this specific label for it. So many defining characteristics of developmental trauma revolve around socialization. A lack of socialization really is neglect. It's one of the baselines of neglect as we really get into defining what this is. Physical development, such as language, sitting, standing, walking, all of these come from socialization. So when you really think about anything in child development that kids learn by doing from infancy all the way up, that's socialization. So we have tangible forms of socialization, like physical progression that we're watching, like, oh, look, they're crawling and now they're walking or they can hold a ball or, you know, maybe they're in occupational therapy and they're learning how to hold their pencil more effectively. And all those tiny things that foster parents have to pay attention to that maybe kids with more or parents of more neurotypical children or children that don't have trauma might not be looking for in physical progression those can be indicators of a lack of socialization Um, and then there's also things that sociologists call material culture which is essentially the idea of any type of socialization that includes us using a material object and learning how to do it so me learning how to drink from this water bottle nobody ever sat down and taught me how to do this I mean sure people consistently help me open bottles still but nobody sat down and explained to me how to take a drink some of it is instinctual and a lot of it is socialization and modeling so that would be called material culture by um sociologists bouncing a ball is a piece of material culture that's learned through socialization and then there's non-material culture like the concept of a family And I think that part is really important for our conversation tonight, right? Just the idea of where do our children learn? What is a family? What is a friendship? What is safety? All of those are components of socialization. So when we think about this tonight, I think it's a real mouthful to talk about non-material culture and material culture and tangible versus this versus this. So we're just gonna call them tangible and non-tangible if it comes up that way from this point forward. And if anybody has questions too, just kind of let me know. Um, Lindsay and Renee are kind enough to watch the Q&A in the chat for me, but feel free to put them in there, especially as we're kind of going over these more heady concepts at the beginning. They're very wordy. So this brings us over to self-development, which I think is so important. It really brings in the role of the foster parent or any parent, but for the sake of tonight, it brings in the role of the foster parent. Psychologists, sociologists, social workers like myself, all of our fields agree that the concept of the self or who we are is dependent on how we're socialized. So really this idea of who we are in development comes out through appropriate and adequate Adequate socialization. Um, and it's it's not really about nature versus nurture. It's really always been and both nature and nurture when we think about self-development and socialization. And what I mean by that is that this situation is really reinforcing the role of a foster parent and how to focus in on the child's nurture instead of just their nature because of the significant developmental jumps that can be made through adequate socialization, even if their chronological age is older than the type of socializing that you have to do, you guys are still what's getting them caught up. You're still teaching them, this is how we sit appropriately at a table. This is what this thing is called. One of my markers of especially complex developmental trauma in session is when I'm sitting down with a kid and they go to grab something like this off of my desk Yes, because they want to write something to me and they might even know how to read or write but they don't have the word for pen versus pencil versus crayon versus marker. Socialization is a language skill. And so a lot of the times the uniqueness of foster parenting is jumping around from chronological age to developmental age and just filling in all these gaps that were left out in situations of neglect. So that's a huge role that you all are involved with um, because really after abuse and neglect, healthy human interaction of any kind is socialization. And also while we're thinking about self-development and nurturing their nature comes up the concept of genes. So a lot of the times we hear people say something like, you know, addiction runs in our family, addiction is in your genes. And that's true. Also what is, can be in our genes is things like mental illness and trauma, all of that is passed down. And I kind of think of it this way, uh, cause I'm more of a visualization kind of person, especially when we get into concepts like this, but I kind of picture a conveyor belt. And it has a bunch of circles or balls coming down it. And those are all of our different genomes that we have coming in the strand. And we have so many of those. Like when we look at those little diagrams of what a strand of DNA looks like, I mean, it's just wild. There's so much complexity to it. So when we picture those little tiny circles on a conveyor belt, what happens is that might be in our genetic coding, but as it passes through different developmental stages, our environment or our nurture kind of tags those genomes and shows what's going to be expressed. So as a foster parent, they might the child might have this genetic makeup for a certain type of presentation or whatever it may be, but whatever you are doing in your home can actually tag a healthier, more prosocial genome so something else doesn't come forward. Now I'm not saying that it's your job to completely rescue children from their genetic pool because we all know that that's just not possible. But what I am saying is that socialization is just such a key factor in your healthy human interactions just in the day-to-day and simple things like modeling how to drink a bottle of water or labeling what to call a pen can make a massive difference in what presents for a child in different developmental stages irregardless of their chronological age.
0: No, that's encouraging actually, because we know that trauma, particularly pre prenatal and early childhood kind of rewrites our DNA a little bit or overwrites our DNA. So Mm -hmm. that is encouraging that it's not necessarily a a life sentence of that. There, there are external factors that can help us manage that, I guess, is a way of saying it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Well, I'm glad that it's encouraging. So we come over here to family socialization, which is really what I've been hinting at this whole time. And really all we've been allowed to do for the last year is family socialization for a lot of us. Um, So A family is a child's first lesson and really what it takes to be socializing. So for some of us, we were going back to basics and just getting back to core concepts in a way over the last year. This is where a child becomes a member of a functioning group. So it's not just that they're a part of a family, but they get to learn how group dynamics function, which is why, and this could be a whole different training, but just kind of this idea that we tend to act out our role that we were in in our family of origin and other relationships until we kind of work on our own stuff. Like you might notice that about yourself that, you know, at home, you might have been the golden child as a kid and you were the child that always like came through and got stuff done. And then all of a sudden you're in a small group project and you're the one carrying the workload, stuff like that. So a lot of how our family functions as a group teaches us how to socialize in group settings later on. But beyond that, our shared values, religion, culture, all of this give a reassuring structure to a young child's experience. Developmentally, trust of the family is crucial for a secure and confident child. So what we're really hinting at here is the role socialization plays in attachment. Um, Children learn to trust as they watch you and your extended family. You show love, anger, joy, sadness, how to celebrate, how to disagree, how to fight, how to work, how to play. All of those things are learned as they are watching you interact with each other and interact with the world around you. And now you'll notice I mentioned extended family, but that doesn't have to literally be extended family. That's whoever your community is, COVID or not, what you are doing to engage with people in your day-to-day that are in your circle you know, maybe they're from your church, maybe they're from foster source, maybe they're really good friends that you've had for a long time or a neighbor that you've been standing outside talking to you when you need someone to interact with. Although these aren't necessarily typical outings or things that our children would have observed or ideally that they would have observed without COVID, there's still these tiny interactions or lack thereof that kids are observing and learning about just by being a part of the family system. So we're going to get over here into um, some brain development development stuff in just a moment. But for a second, while we're on this slide, I just kind of want everybody to think about what I had just mentioned around how our family system teaches us to function within a group, how our interactions with each other within a family system, and what we model as far as interacting with the world around us, how much that impacts children. And I want to, if you guys are willing, to kind of reflect on any themes that you recognize from your childhood in terms of socialization that you have then grown up to model. So for instance, if you had parents that were not likely to engage in a peer group or really didn't have like friends, you might notice that now as an adult, you struggle with making fair relationships, or that's not a big priority for you. Or maybe it is a huge one, because as with anything from our childhood, we find things that we love and there are things that we don't like. And sometimes we're parenting and model of that, sometimes we're parenting the antithesis of that, and sometimes we're finding that healthy in between. So I want you guys to just kind of think for a moment about anything that you experienced as a child that you can now kind of reframe as part of your socialization that might. Might be impacting how you function in your family system or your parenting now if you'd like to share it in the chat feel free but please don't feel pressure to i just want to kind of give everyone a moment to flex this new muscle as far as what socialization looks like for us before we really get into the nitty-gritty of the brain
0: yeah feel free feel free to chat there guys um, for me, my parents were very social. They, they loved being the host. So they often had folks over. My ho- house and home was a very happy home. But what I didn't realize until later was there was an extreme lack of, or I should say, avoidance of conflict. Mm-hmm. And that, I t- it was great when you're a kid, right? But I took that into adulthood and really had to learn skills to have productive conflict.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. Let's see. My chat bar is not pulling up. Do we have anything in there? Not yet. Okay, I'll give like one more minute before I move forward.
0: somebody said i am my mother uh i hear you same as an adult i have learned to not brush things under the rug like renee said as well yeah maybe that was kind of generational with when we were kids but yeah you, it was definitely a learned skill um mm-hmm. someone says i'm fairly certain my adoption had a role in my behavior as a teen Um, someone else said I had five younger siblings and I think my socialization was very different from them since I was given more responsibility. Absolutely. To both of those, um, adoption would definitely affect behavior as a teen. And Mm -hmm. we, I didn't even think of that like, um, birth order roles and responsibilities that were given.
1: Yeah. Birth order is such an interesting thing. And, For some people, the stereotypes around birth order are very true. And for some people, they couldn't be less true. And that's where I think it's so interesting, too, where we get into kind of those therapeutic theories of family roles that I kind of mentioned earlier. Because a lot of the time you'll see the majority birth order wise line up with different like roles that have been carved out. And then sometimes you just kind of get a wild card where people really surprise you. So I think birth order is huge in socialization and just impacts so much how we learn to function within a group. For sure. And I think for our generation,
0: I would kind of say gender roles as as well. And I mean, that was definitely the case in my family and is to this day. I have two brothers, no sisters and guess who plans everything whenever there's a gift that it's time to give mom and dad, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's me. Um, Kevin added, and he's right. Early neural pathway formation was not optimal. Um, this is going back to how adoption, um, affects teen behavior and that's what i was saying earlier is that you know that that dna formation even pre prenatally you know and that's i think that's what's um challenging when we're fostering um children from trauma any really anywhere we go but particularly schools or other other parents who Mm -hmm. don't understand that and they think well how could that still affect them they weren't born yet or they were so young Um, but I tell you, once you step into foster care, you, you understand it.
1: Mm -hmm. It's funny. I I moved into a new office building and I was chatting with a neighbor and, he was like, yeah, we actually just adopted four kids. And I was like, oh, great. This is going to be such a good like building neighbor. And he goes, but we adopted them pretty young. So they're never going to need therapy. And I was like, Ooh, should I tell him now or? <laughs> you know know, I mean? enough.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'll let him figure it out on his own. At least he knows where to find me. Okay, well, I'll dive into then this brain development piece and bear with me kind of a nerdy topic, but I'm really into it. Um, and just kind of take it or leave it, whatever you find applicable to you. But I just think when you are taking time to take care of these littles, whatever we can do to kind of understand what's going up, going on up here and how things ended up the way they did is so important. And that piece that was just mentioned as far as early development and whether it was ideal or not is, very, very relevant to the slide. So that was actually a beautiful transition for me without you knowing it, so thank you. Uh, But our brain develops sequentially meaning kind of this then this then this exactly like you would expect me to be saying so the brain stem is developed in utero and so that has everything to do with biological mother and then that cortical piece is minimal and when i say cortical i mean that ability for abstract functioning the older we get the more abstract and the more gray we can get in our thought patterns which we've all observed over time Then there's part of the brain called the diencephalon. And as that develops, we are no longer in utero. So this is during infant development and early child development, primarily infancy. And the caregivers are a huge part of this. So this is no longer the big focus on the biological piece. As as we all know, the biological piece never becomes irrelevant necessarily, but any primary caregiver can be very impactful in this. And then we continue to move on and develop the brain and we get into the limbic brain, which is my favorite part of the brain because it's where all the feelings and everything like that exists. And that's when we get further into childhood, middle childhood and early adolescence. That's why we have those really moody early adolescents, as you know, they're just ramping up towards puberty. Their limbic system is forming. They're trying to figure all of it out and becoming more and more and more and more aware. And their friends start mattering a little bit more too. And then lastly, we get over to the neocortex, and that is the part of our brain development. It's very cerebral. It's very thought-based, all those kinds of things that our peers have so much to do with. So you guys might have heard that anecdote that's really common when you're talking about mental health, where people talk about the stage in human growth and development, where friendships actually become more important than the parental role. I would argue back on that one, and I would say both are equally as important to adolescents, both peers and parents. However, teens are just more easily influenced by their peers. You know, they they care more what they think and want to comply with them. Their world falls apart for a couple of days when they change best friends, but it's nothing like having trauma within the family system, neglect, abuse, anything like that. So, I mean, to be kind of blunt about it, I think it's kind of a privileged perspective to say that. In adolescents peers matter more than parents just because I think that often comes from people that don't realize how much we still do need our parents as teens and young adults so again I would say socialization wise they're equally as important as we kind of form that thought part of our brain that takes so long to develop. Okay, and then continuing on to this, the importance of peer interaction and typical settings. So obviously with COVID, typical settings has not been what we're all dealing with, right? Um, But early peer interactions influence our relational capacity moving forward. A quality of a peer relationship is most directly linked to the child's own behavior, that one I find really heavy for foster kids because really what this is talking about is natural consequences. When we think about in early childhood through middle childhood. So I'm talking like preschool through elementary, a lot of the time, the way kids are treating other kids is because of that kid's own behavior. They don't have what the teens have yet. As far as that neocortex where they're kind of like picking them apart and noticing, you know, social hierarchies and stuff like that. So it really is like, no one plays with that kid because that kid bites everyone but then for us as people that love the kids that are biting everyone it's really hard because although we can understand appropriately in socialization why they're weeding each other out it's still hard because we can't sit down with a four-year-old and explain that their classmate bites them because their whole life is hard right that's just too difficult And that's what I think is really important for understanding what's going on for our littles with COVID-19 because they are going to be, you know, either included or excluded with peer groups based on their behavior. So those of our children that are having a harder time reintegrating In bigger settings, it will continue initially to be harder if their behavior is really aggressive, mean, those types of things. That said, the way we combat that is slowly integrating them into these settings, having more one-on-one peer interactions, practicing these engagements, and most importantly, kind of looping things together, making sure the culture that we're setting up in our home, and our family system, sets up boundaries and roles that are conducive to their success social settings. So although they might not have as much practice, we can still give them the foundation that they need
0: yeah. can you help us with when, you, when our child is kind of the one who's had the more challenging behavior, maybe mm-hmm. some of the kids are kind of pulling back a little bit, like you're explaining here, what, mm-hmm. where is the balance as far as kind of sharing a little bit with their parent? where that behavior is coming from in an attempt to like you're saying try again yeah without, I think you know sacrificing their privacy or their story that's not ours
1: to share right and i think you know making sure teachers know and then definitely especially if your kiddo talks about a specific kid and they really like them and they enjoy them Talking to the parents, making sure that the parents have some indication that this is something you're aware of, you're working on it, especially for parents of elementary school age kids or preschool age kids coming from parent to parent being like, oh, I own that. My kid does that really puts the other parent at ease and makes them more likely to encourage their kid to play with other children. And then I think, you know, with COVID, since we are so limited with who we can spend time with and what we can do, this is a great opportunity for us to push ourselves as parents to get unique with playdates now that, you know, outside really is being deemed as a safe place. And we'll have a section towards the end where we kind of brainstorm with each other, what's working playdate wise, what's not. What we can do, what we can't do. But, you know, maybe you pick a child that you know your kiddo is going to be within a classroom next year and you start a buddy system and they start going to the playground together or they start going on walks outside together. We make sure that they have neighbor kiddos that they can kind of learn from throughout the summer before they prepare to go back to school next year. Those types of things where we're really setting them up for success with their peer group because no different than it's not necessarily our child's fault that they're right or if they have a bunch of trauma, it's not the victim of the bites fault that they don't want to play with them anymore that's just kind of the natural consequence of the behavior furthermore working on our end like hey just so you know, Aubrey, it's my daughter's name, might not want to play with you tomorrow because you did bite her. So maybe we could try saying sorry to her and being nice to her tomorrow because that probably made her feel scared. You know, having those types of conversations with our children after they do that so that we're evoking that empathy, we're explaining. And then, you know what, say Aubrey is still a real jerk, (laughs) even if your child does apologize, then they were at least prepared for it. They're not shocked and stunned and confused. Why not? No one wants to be their friend for a day. Does that help at all? Yeah, that was super helpful. Thank you.
2: Okay.
1: Absolutely. Um, kindergarten behaviors and interactions can be a clear indicator of what's going to happen for your kiddo. So if COVID hit during kindergarten for your placement, I am so sorry (laughs) because I'm about to tell you this and then you're going to go, well, we didn't get that this year. Um, but essentially it comes out in play and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but there's a type of play that we call multifaceted or complex play versus parallel play. And again, I'm going to get more in depth with this as well, but if a kindergartner can engage in complex play, meaning they aren't just parallel, they're not just sitting next to their friend playing with the car while their friend plays with the car, they're actually sitting with their friends and these are their two cars and this is where they're going and there's a driver in the car and that's this driver's name and this is this driver's name and he's in a hurry to get here and he's in more of a hurry because they're racing and it's that kind of engagement and there's a storyline and there's imagination Typically, regardless of other behaviors that kids have, if they can do that, they are going to be more successful in peer interactions for the rest of school. So that's a little hope. Even if you've got the biter, for example, if they can kind of engage in that multifaceted play, we have somewhere we can go with that. So, that is something that I would suggest if you're working with that preschool age group, parenting that preschool age group, that you really work on that multifaceted play. And I'm not saying force it, but what I am saying is really encourage that type of play if you see it with siblings, if they see it, if you see it when they're playing with you. my second screen decided to just go black on me real quick. Um, so here's some considerations for socializing. Preschool and elementary aged um, kiddos, their teacher is the one that provides the structure and is a significant influence. So for preschool and early elementary age kiddos, um, and then all the way through elementary, a big part of their appropriate socialization actually is not the peers. It is the teacher because they are creating another functioning group. They are creating a new set of boundaries, they are creating a new set of norms and cultural things, and they have those tangible and non-tangible components that we were talking about, and that's what the children are learning about. That is who they're looking to, their classroom teachers, paraprofessionals, aides, people that are offering them the structure and that are setting the boundaries and laying this foundation for the social landscape, that is who is really influencing these kids. So ironically, the foster parents I've spoken to that are the most concerned about about their child socialization are in this age group. So it's actually the age group that cares more about interacting with their caregiver and learning from them and being influenced by them that have the parents that are the most concerned. And then we're going to come back around to this play piece. So children in preschool through first grade are most likely to engage in parallel play. So like I said earlier, if in kindergarten, they can do a little bit of that multifaceted play, that's great. However, it's not atypical for children to shy away from that and stick to parallel play. So really getting into parallel play, what that looks like, right? From a trauma lens, not just a developmental lens. Like I described, it's two kids playing cars next to each other. That's for more of our neurotypical, not necessarily experiencing trauma, that type of play. Parallel play, when there's been a lack of socialization, when there's been neglect, those type of things like with anything in foster care and with trauma increased frequency and severity. So for instance, in the past I worked with a child and he was homeless for really his entire life until he was taken into care at around the second grade level. When he got into play therapy with me, he did not want me to play with him because he did not know how. So if you would have watched our sessions, you would have been like, Cassandra is the world's laziest therapist ever, (laughs) because it would have looked like... I, you know, I'm sitting next to him. I might be just like drinking my water. A lot of my kids need music to play because they kind of like co-regulate with music. So typically if you're in my office and I have a kid under the age of 10, kids bop is on because they really do. They just like bebop and regulate. So it might look like I'm just scrolling on my phone, like looking at my favorite kids bop music or writing notes during their session because children that have a lack of socialization because of how they have been neglected have never been engaged with in play. They can watch a YouTube. YouTube video with me, like nobody's business, but they don't know how to play house. They don't know how to engage with my stuff in the sand tray. They don't know how to make their Barbie talk to my Barbie. They know how to make their Barbies talk to each other sometimes, but they want me to watch. But slowly over time, as they get more comfortable with me and I model sometimes in my own play, what I'm doing, they'll engage with me and they'll interact. So it might seem like a child in your home doesn't want you to play with them, sit with them anyways, watch them anyways look like a lazy parent that's just sitting next to them and doing nothing even though it feels really weird and you could be doing laundry or something just watch and then slowly make comments like oh He was really nice to her, or wow, your car is really fast, or you look really happy when you play kitchen. Maybe sometime I could try. Just kind of those slow lead ins to work your way into that multifaceted play with them because it's going to set them up for so much success with their peers. Because, like our last bullet point said, that's going to become gradually more important kind of from the second to third grade level forward. So, we really want to work with our kiddos that chronologically might be there already, but in a lot of ways have never been given the time, attention, socialization to know how to play. And so again, taking this into COVID, COVID COVID-19 is actually giving us an opportunity to get them caught up in some ways because they're at home more, they're playing more. We have opportunities to observe their play. And although it's super sucks for us parents, we're in the teacher role. And so while we're within this teaching role, even though we kind of don't want to be, we are both the parent that socializing them in the functioning group of the family system and we're the influential teacher that we're talking about that is trying to guide them into multifaceted play. So that way, when they do read the school system into playing with each other, into birthday parties, into all those things, they might just be that much more ready to actually do it the way that their peers do. And not that I'm trying to force them to be just like their peers. I don't want that to be heard either, but I do want them to set them up for success so they can engage in their peers' engage with their peers in a way that has some reciprocity for both them and the peers so they can enjoy the relationships. I mean, if COVID-19 has taught us nothing else, we actually, even the most introverted, shy one of us, we care about human interaction and we love each other and need each other and need to be around each other. So if we can set up our kids to be more successful, let's do it, right? So then like we have... that idea,
0: sorry, one second. I like that idea of just kind of those easy little sentences as you're sitting there watching them play. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is um, repetition, repetition or I I'm saying this because we did PCIT therapy, which is parent child interaction therapy. And that's a lot of what happens in parent child interaction therapy. It's almost almost like narrating what they're doing, but it, it's in a way it's, there's a bonding that, mm-hmm. that happens when you do that.
1: Yeah. And I think kids feel really seen. That's what I love about PCIT, although I don't do it. Um, kids that go through that feel so seen and understood by their parents. It's really cool to watch.
0: One quick question, uh, Cassandra. Uh, Someone says, I might have missed this, but is it beneficial for my preschooler to have a play date with a peer if they don't want any interaction and play separately, but they do watch the other child?
1: Yes, absolutely. So that is a great example of what parallel play looks like when there's a little bit of trauma going on um it really does look like oh you're just enjoying watching the other kid okay but that is a huge part of their socialization and so what you can do that's kind of cool there if you're ready and open to play dates because again I want to be respectful of where everybody's at what county they're in and where they're at with vaccines and all that kind of stuff but if you're ready for that you can make those statements back and forth like you know it might sound like oh yeah Aubrey, you are doing so well playing cars, and I'm noticing that Andy over here, he's not playing with cars at all. He's playing with this, but I notice both of you look super happy while you're playing and kind of drawing on similarities, drawing on what you see each of them doing so that you can give your child that language to be able to observe play in the future and kind of conceptualize it for themselves. I'm just checking to see if I got any other notifications up here. It doesn't look like it. I think I'm in the clear. Yep. Yep. Okay. So this is considerations for early through middle childhood since COVID-19, and this is kind of what we were all getting into as a group as well. So this is taking us all the way up through elementary school, basically, which is social norms and feelings of competence, exactly like what we just said, with the different types of play, how to make it feel inclusive, how to kind of encourage our kids into it. And again, social norms are heavily learned within the family system. And I know sometimes it might not feel that way, but there are just little, things that our kids tell us that are really reassuring. Like I was with, um, my nephews today and they're twins and they're 10. So they're a great example for this. And they're in fourth grade and they were talking about this kid in their class and they were just kind of going off and they're venting. And they looked at me and they were like, who does that? And (laughs) what this kid did was not that weird. He took a pen He unscrewed it and he dumped the ink everywhere and got a respect violation. I mean, great choice. No. Would I be so mad if that was in my house? For sure. It was a red pen. But my sister and brother-in-law are quite clean. And so my twin nephews were appalled that this child dumped out pen ink on purpose, like just could not believe it and could not believe that the teacher could hold it together. So that absolutely came from the home environment and not the classroom environment. And then the funny thing too with kids is they start switching rules back and forth. Um, So my daughter's daycare and I have now stolen this. And now her preschool likes to say thumbs up and thumbs down choices, which I've, I love it and I'm taking it. And so she would start coming home at like two years old and be like, those are real thumbs down, mama. And I'm like, uh oh, I'm in trouble with my toddler right now. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So they bring stuff home as far as the social norms that they're learning. And that's where their feelings of competence come to. Did I just fit in? Did I follow the norm the way I was supposed to? Self-advocacy. That is one thing that's really tricky during COVID-19, because as parents, we're burnt out, we're isolated, we're stressed, and we want compliance. Self-advocacy, though, sometimes means them pushing back on us or speaking up for themselves when we just want them to be quiet. So learning balance within your home of how to foster that self-advocacy and appreciate it while also getting the calm and the quiet that you need. think I had a question. There's
0: a question for teens. Um, So I'll read it now. I don't know if you want to get to it now, but it's a great question. I have a teen who has missed the majority of his freshman year of high school. I don't know what he's like around his, his peers. And I'm nervous. Are there things I can do to feel out where he's at socially?
1: Definitely. Our teen slide is coming right up. So we'll just finish here and then we'll get on over to the teen questions um, so early and middle childhood again is re-entering society and i wanted to put society on here because like we were talking about with the babies Some of them really aren't used to grocery stores. They're not used to sit down restaurants. They are not used to running into the gas station to grab something. They might know the Amazon man really well at this point, but do they know when or when not to say hi when walking through the supermarket? Those little things that are going to return for us to the new normal that us as adults are so excited about because we know how to do it really well. They don't know how to do. So kind of doing a mini social story for any setting you're going into that you think your kiddo could be unfamiliar with. Um, one foster parent I work with gave me a really lovely example. She's just very impressive in general, but she has a little guy that gets overstimulated by noise. They're going into a grocery store and she warned him, it might be noisy in here. He covers his ears. That's a totally natural response, completely appropriate. And when they got in and it wasn't loud, she kind of taps in and pulls his hands down and says, Hey, it's actually not that loud. And the little guy notices, okay, it's not so bad in here, but at least he was prepared for either outcome. He felt like he knew how to protect himself. He had an ability to regulate. He knew a safe person was there and then he was able to proceed. Beautiful. Last one, increase in screen time. I don't know about you guys, but I watched a lot of Coco Melon this year and I'm pretty sick of it. So I don't know if anyone else has really little.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, we've had, we've had a lot of screen time in
2: our
1: house and we just we kind of have to there's just not an option so we're gonna have to taper them down because they've gotten really used to the screen time we have two, so just kind of trying to give them some grace that over the last year that was okay so when you slowly put those boundaries back up it's going to be hard for them And I like to do more of a balancing act than just take it away. Like, oh, we did 10 minutes of screen time. Let's do 10 minutes outside because summer's here and we can do that now. So just kind of trying to balance the screen time with doing things outside, being interactive and being mindful. And parents, if we are telling them not to be doing this, we have to try not to be scrolling. I know that it's not that easy um, because a lot of us have to work too. But if we are asking our children to be present and be mindful, we should try to put our stuff down for a few minutes too, especially for the younger ones. Because again, socialization, it's what we're modeling. Not a do as I say,
0: not as I do situation.
1: (laughs) I mean, most things are at this point in the pandemic, aren't they?
0: Right. (laughs) <laughs> hey somebody had mentioned that their kid's school is doing the type of socializing that you were talking about they said they got our first placement in november and they lucked out that the kiddo school works with that type of socializing that's awesome
1: that's amazing i yeah. love to hear that maybe you could privately email um, me where you're at and what school your kiddo is going to because i would love to know um okay now we're over to our teenagers So like we talked about with that neocortex, that is this time period that we're getting into where they super care about their friends and they're easily influenced by their friends. This is going to sound Kind of counterintuitive or counterproductive to belonging. But, and this applies to that question take time and interest promoting their individuality so that they have someone to share their interests with. This can be music and clothing and TV shows, like whatever media they've been into. Watch the TikToks, even if you don't understand why they're funny, let them explain to you why it's funny. And this will be a really good indicator for your freshman as far as where he's at and what he's into. In what kind of group he's going to fall into and then use your foster source community a little bit. Hey, does anyone else have a 15 year old that's really into this? Is this typical? Is this what you're seeing? What have you guys noticed? Really draw on your community and your extended supports to place him. If you're not used to that age group, that can be a beautiful part. One of the many, many beautiful parts about being with foster sources. You have other people that you can talk to. You can also, if you want to, if you do this with him, send me an email and just kind of let me know what you learn about him and I'd be happy to let you know if I see some of my teens doing the same thing.
0: That's a great um, idea. And that made me think um, for for the person who wrote that, if you want to reach out to me at info at I have a couple of amazing foster moms of teen boys that I'd be happy to connect you with. And you can kind of
1: compare and contrast with what, what they say. Yay, I bet you it's going to have something to do with TikTok. <laughs> That's all I hear about lately. I from secretly
0: love it. I, I secretly love TikTok.
1: I do too. <laughs> I'm so bad,
0: but funny. I do. I do.
1: <laughs> I love that. So the other thing too, look out for depression and anxiety. I know as foster parents, you guys are trained in this. You work so hard on this, but if you feel like your teen is headed that way trust your gut and just really let them know that you care, show up for them, try to get them into therapy. If they're open to it, if they're not into therapy, there's absolutely alternatives to anything with movement, yoga classes. I actually have a therapist within my practice. Her name's Ellie. She's wonderful. Um, and she is certified in trauma yoga and we're going to have some classes going on likely over zoom. Um, there's music therapy out there now. There's so many non-traditional things that aren't talk therapy, but that can get them with somebody outside of the home and kind of ramp them up for that peer group and get them into a place where they can talk about what they're dealing with. Um, but again, whether we're talking about the belonging or the feelings of depression and anxiety, what we're getting at is that you're really vital for them to get through this pandemic. They need to feel seen and heard and to belong somewhere. And that somewhere is going to need to be your home. They're also going to need a safe place to be a jerk of a teenager because that's what teenagers do. So I'm sorry in advance. Um, a friend of mine who may or may not be here right now actually made a super hilarious TikTok with inspirational quotes um out of text messages that her teen daughters have sent her or teen foster daughters. And I have never laughed so hard in my whole life as that. that? So if that. you need some humor she may or may not be here and be willing to share with you guys. I
0: love that. I mean, I, I have to say for our team, we were really shocked at first at how much more time she was in her room and wanted to be alone in her room. But it, and we were worried at first, at first we were like, no, this is forced family fun. Dang it. Get out here with the rest of us. Right. but then we started realizing and recognizing that every night before she went to bed, she would come in and talk to us for about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we were like, okay, she can Mm -hmm. have her alone time. She's still, you know, she's checking in. She's still, she still needs us just kind of on her schedule, not on
1: ours. Yeah. Feeling like she's in control. And then comes this increased screen time. And I mentioned, we kind of talked about this a little bit, social media and another training that I was lucky enough to do for Foster Source. But for teens, I have kind of, I don't know if it's a unique viewpoint, maybe it's the wrong one. I don't know. It's anecdotal, if anything. But screen time, I don't think is all bad for them, especially during this pandemic, because adolescents are really interactive. Um, that's how they're staying connected with their friends. And a lot of us adults had to be the old people that had to have our teens teach us how to zoom, or even like my parents are now into FaceTime and they never used to do that. And, you know, our teenagers really piloted for us all these unique ways that we can find to connect over social media and challenges that we can do together and threads and inside jokes just because we've all seen the same reel or TikTok screen time's actually been a really powerful protective factor in my opinion during this pandemic. So I'm not saying we should always give them this much time in their room or this much screen time but also that balance and understanding that this is what got them through a really dark year when what was most important to them was being with their friends and they couldn't do that. So maybe we settle with them putting their phone away during meals and, you know, they'd sit outside and they're on their phone, you know, just finding whatever balance makes sense in your home. And then when they do start having friends over, really making sure that you are having those conscious conversations with your teens, like, Hey, when you're with someone, put your phone down those types of things so that they can start understanding how to have social interactions. Because if we're being honest, some of our teens didn't do that before COVID. So it's not too late for them to learn about it now. The next thing we're gonna be switching to is brainstorming social outings. So if anybody has any questions, whether it's childhood or adolescent that they wanna drop in just for the developmental ages, feel free to do so now.
0: I think you did a great job of what I always say my therapist does for me often is just kind of giving permission, right? Giving permission mm-hmm. that we we know we have increased screen time and it's something that we generally feel guilty about. But mm-hmm. right now it is kind of a coping tool for mm-hmm. for our kids and for us. So yeah. so thank you for validating that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so here's kind of like my, my brainstorm that I've come up with. We just talked about leveraging virtual platforms. Then there's the bubble, um, which I know the CDC came out with. It's kind of like find your people, stay in your bubble. Outdoor activities are consistently proving to be very safe. Um, and luckily our weather is going positive for us. I'm, sure I'm going to check my weather app after saying all this, and then it's going to be like blizzard tomorrow because we're in Colorado. But we're all in different parts of Colorado, so I don't know. Maybe it'll be sunny for you and not for me. <laughs> but when it's nice outside, getting out there with your kids, maybe making new friends, going to playgrounds, that kind of thing. And then lastly, just making sure we're helping our children continue to understand the importance of hand washing and wearing their masks. It really seems more and more so that vaccines and masks and hand washing are going to be our key to returning. a sense of normalcy so as much as we can and i'm not trying to step on anyone's value system if you're anti-vaccine not where i'm going with this i'm just saying helping our children understand what the value system is within your home and how to move forward with socializing as safely as possible within what you're comfortable with in all areas But if anybody else has a magic trick for socializing or social outings um, and interactions that I don't have listed, feel free to let me know so I can use them too.
0: Yeah, what have you guys been seeing, if you don't mind sharing in the chat, like for us, when we take our kiddo to the park, we usually go in a mask, but you know, it was outdoors and it's socially distanced, so We'll usually just talk to the other parents there and they're usually like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't care or whatever, but we kind of just kind of go with whatever the general feel is of the group that's there.
1: That's what we do too. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm gonna scoot over to my last slide and then if we have anyone wants to use their last um, couple minutes for discussion on any of these topics we can, but kind of in the same name as giving permission, I want to offer some relief around socializing after COVID, which is children are adaptable. Maintaining this open dialogue is so important. Knowing your comfort level and your county guidelines, not that those two things will always match up. Um, and then also those social stories I mentioned as you reintegrate, but mostly I labeled this children are adaptable because we have to remember in a lot of cases, this is harder on us than them in terms of having to wear a mask. Most of my kids don't really care about masks anymore especially my teenagers like I am lucky enough to have an office where I can be six feet apart um and so since I work with a lot of trauma I let kids take masks off if we are socially distanced I know they have parents that are responsible you know that kind of thing um And a lot of them forget that they're allowed to do that once they're seated and everything's sanitized and they will keep their mask on the whole session because they're so used to having them on, you know, they're used to being on social media. A lot of kids are back in in in-person schools. Um, Everyone's just kind of figuring it out. My daughter loves to wear her mask. She thinks she looks like a doctor or a superhero. Um, And i back up both of those theories for her pretty heavily. She'll just like wear her COVID mask around the house sometimes. I'm like, all right right I think today it was COVID mask shorts no shirt and a pair of winter gloves at one point so she was really styling but... I love it I mean yeah. I, I
0: have to say the way it was at first I can't believe we're at this point now where like because I kept saying there's no way my kid is going to sit with a mask all day I was, he does it doesn't really phase him anymore you know but it it felt so awkward at first, but I just, I can't believe we're at that point, but I guess that's what a year does, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, it sucks that our kids have had to be that adaptable, but really they are. Um, So I I just really wanted to take a moment to remind all of you that being a parent right now, being a person right now is hard. Being a foster parent is exceptional. And you continue to offer safe havens for children that need it. But especially now when home is really the only place they can be, just remembering to give yourself grace wherever you need it, because kids are adaptable and they're going to figure this out. That's not to say, I'm not concerned with their emotional health, but I'm also concerned with yours. And I just want to remind you as parents that they're going to figure it out. They really are. And they're going to figure out reintegrating into the new normal as well, whatever that looks like. A lot of the time it's us that are so worried about them and it's so different for us that we have that really hard time. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there as well, but here's my name, my cell phone number, my email address and my website. So if anybody ever wants to reach out, if you have questions about this training, anything like that, I'm always happy to continue discussion with anyone from foster source outside of my training time. So please do not hesitate to reach out.
0: Thank you, Cassandra. This was so, so helpful. It just it makes me feel so much better. And I mean, I want to also just remind the foster parents that they're doing such a great job. And also a shout out to the teachers, because they're really pulling in some amazing tools. And I've been, I've been really impressed. Um, Lindsay, you've been so quiet. There she is. (laughs) i've just been fighting to stay awake i know right this is full on our bedtime um lindsey's going to walk you guys through how to find your certificate for tonight thank you cassandra that was amazing
1: yeah thank you all have a good night
2: i don't know why you muted me renee I accidentally stopped recording sorry I I, I
0: tried to but it warned me it's not it didn't stop okay
2: okay (laughs) so our verification code for tonight is social all lowercase um I just want to say too if you emailed me that you were attending with someone else I've already marked that you attended the webinar so you're going to be able to go to the class on your dashboard and complete all the components I'm about to walk through
0: Can you tell Lindsay's from South
2: Carolina? Say walk walk again. No. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's like your favorite word for me to say. All right. So now when you go to your dashboard and select the class, it should look something like this. You'll go over here and type in your code and submit, get your pop-up that it worked. And then I know it says nine questions, but they're fairly brief survey questions. Please take the time to fill them out and do not follow my example. We greatly appreciate it, especially as we are trying to get more and more funding to better serve you all. there. Oh, wrong one, do that. Okay, so then you hit finish, again, get your pop up. And then most importantly, is you have to hit this viewer print your certificate. Once you hit that, you're good. And it saves to the learning source. So you can always find those on your dashboard for any certificate you've earned through foster source. You just go to your dashboard, select transcript and achievements and everything is listed. And you can always use that orange viewer print certificate. Um, If you want the handout from tonight's class or the presentation, let me get back to it. And it's already moved. Um, Well, you can show it on on another class where it is. I should be able to yeah yeah so you would just select the class of course we don't have one for that one (laughs) picked one that doesn't have one I need to go to bed I apologize everyone no worries let me see is aces up yet yeah I think it has one so when you go to the class on your dashboard you have these tabs and you just select handouts and any handouts for the class are listed there
0: and try to do all this, I know it's about time right now, it is for us, but try to do this in the next couple of days. We give you usually about four days to do this. And after that, this class will turn into an on-demand class. So if you do it after that, your certificate will say that you watched it on demand, that not that you were live. And I know with some counties that that matters, which, which ones you attended live and which ones you watched.
2: Yeah, and if it comes up and gives you an on-demand certificate, Unfortunately, there is no way for me to go into the system and change that.
0: So try to do it in the next 24, 48 hours. Um, Awesome. Looks like Cassandra hopped off.